Welcome to the Trade Waiters. Uh, we are reviewing more of Hawkeye by Matt Fraction, David Aha, and various other contributors. We started with volumes one and two last episode, uh, and uh, Jonathan and Jam had read the omnibus, and I did not realize uh, there was this omnibus. So uh, we're now covering volumes three and four to thus complete reading of the omnibus, though I decided to just stick. I'm, if you make you make the mistake, you may as well just like lean Mitch. into it. So I bought volumes three and four. So I can now we can contrast and compare the experience of reading four individual graphic novels compared to one omnibus collection. Good. Uh, of okay. Matt, Matt Fraction uh, Hawkeye run. <laughs> I will say like if you want to compare the experience like uh this is a really interesting after effect of reading comics digitally so I I'm a tiny person and omnibuses often are heavy and cumbersome to me <laughs> you know like I especially don't like oversized omnibuses omnibus editions of things because I can't physically hold them comfortably to read them I would rather read a shorter, smaller book. And initially I had thought like, you know what, maybe uh, like I bought a lot of omnibuses of various things digitally because it's, what does it matter? It's all the exact same physical weight. It's all the exact same physical size. You get more value uh, usually buying the omnibus, but the omnibus was really long. <laughs> <laughs> and I kept like going back up to the page count to be like oh my god there's so much more of this that I have to read and uh not in a way that it like I wasn't enjoying it but I felt like I wasn't making progress sometimes and I feel like if it had been split into four files I could have felt a little bit more accomplished like ah yes I got through like I've read like nine volumes of saga and somehow it, it feels less burdensome because I can split it up a little bit cognitively but maybe that's that's just like a brain brain hack talk. I don't know. I mean, I think that's more of a problem with a book like Hawkeye, where like the the pacing in superhero comics is different than it was like 20 years ago, but it's still like very dense. Mm. Uh, and so it takes longer to get through this many pages, I think. Yeah. Compared to like if it was uh like this much of monster or something where it's yeah. like you're flipping those pages pretty fast yeah it's really true like i i i came up through manga and so i'm just kind of used to that that pace of reading and so it it's true it's a it's a little bit more dense is a better way to put it yeah it's not it's, got, not, it's not high that that's a bad thing it's just that it's a different experience yeah i mean it's like the difference between right reading like uh uh, a young adult novel and and Dostoevsky or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting too, because like this originally was presented in the format of like individual 24 page floppies that you would pick up once a month. And so the each sort of little 24 page section was like its own little cliffhanger. And yeah. And that's something I wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to last time too, is that as much as we're trade waiters and we're reading the book um, and it works this story works well as a book I think it also works really well as individual chapters which is not always the case with superhero comics I would agree with that you could you could really feel the little chapter arcs yeah yeah they're they're kind of self-contained like yeah. more so in the first half I think than in the second half 
the second half there's a plot that they need to get through but in the first half like I, I feel like you could get like a single 24 page issue and, and read it cover to cover and feel like you've actually accomplished something mm-hmm. yeah and the ability to do sort of both of those things simultaneously is uh, a statement of skill level. Well, this yeah, is, um, I mean, this is something I found reading this because, you know, you were talking about it feeling like a slog jam. No, I, I don't want to use the word slog. Just, Not slog. Okay. I, I, like, I actually enjoyed it, but I, <laughs> I, from a time management perspective. Right. Like, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. But yeah, just like, I mean, from that perspective, like, I found myself, even with, again, I read this broken up into four individual readings. Even each of those, I found I would read like a little section and I would just put it down. I would be like, I'd be like, oh, that was quite a nice, like I read the, like the story about Cherry and they're driving in the car. And I was like, oh, that was really fun. And then I put it down and I did something else. And then later that day I picked it up and I like read the next part. And it's like, uh, even, you know, yeah, I just sort of found myself like reading to a point and then just putting the book down and being like, well, here's where you'd be waiting for the next issue to come out. Uh, so I'm going to take a pause here and I'm going to like, let that digest. And then I'm going to pick it up and read it again. But I think that's because I'm thinking about the monthly comic format and I'm almost like artificially, uh, ex- like I'm making myself experience that. Cause I kind of know this is how it used to be. Yeah. For me. Okay. Okay. Um, which I think it's easier to do when you're not cramming for a book podcast. Yeah, yes, yeah I think yeah, for yeah. me, like, <laughs> it must be just like a difference in uh, reader habits, right? So it's definitely, I, I wasn't thinking about the 24 page issue pace mm. when I was reading it. Like when I read comics, I kind of just read and I right. read for a while. Right. You know, I kind of read for an arbitrary length of time or like, very rarely will I read a whole GN in one sitting, but I feel like I would come up against those 24 page break. And probably my brain was like, here is a stopping point. And so then when I tried to like pick up on the next section, I'm Mm. like, okay, now it like narratively, it feels like we've come over the hill and now we're, we're climbing a hill today. Like, do I feel like climbing this hill? (laughs) (laughs) And so probably it would have, I would have been better served to like do it in short chunks like that yeah um so i know we're kind of already into it but i was just going to quickly shout out uh so we know matt fractions our writer here last episode we talked about sort of the 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 pinch hitting artists outside of david aha which was uh francesco francavilla who i kept maligning who actually did some really good comic work and then uh javier uh, pulido who's kind of the one that does deserve some of the scorn, which uh, it was interesting. You kept talking about the silhouettes, John, and I didn't know what you were talking about until I started reading volume three. And there's that whole story arc where like almost every panel, it's just a character in black silhouette. And I was just like, he clearly had no time to draw anything. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I can, I can only assume that that's what, how he got to that point, because like even for Javier Paludo, this is, this is not him at his best yeah yeah um and then uh but you know uh, i was gonna shout out um so in volume three i was really pleased to see that annie Wu got to do some full issues because annie Wu did all the romance novel interstitials in the volume two so i was really happy to see annie Wu drawing a lot of the kate bishop in la chapters i thought yeah, her cool. work was really solid mm-hmm. and then 
Chris Eliopoulos, I hope I'm saying that right, is he was the letterer uh, for most of the series, but Chris does a humor strip on the side. Oh, cool. A long, long running thing called Desperate Times, which is more of a Sunday comic style thing. And he got to do the dream sequence, the Christmas special dream sequence. Okay. And just as a quick sidebar, I was going to mention Chris Eliopoulos was one of the last people to hand letter before switching to digital. And he, his claim to fame is he hand lettered the first 100 issues of the Savage Dragon. Oh my God. That takes commitments. Yeah. That takes commitment. Yeah. So uh, just, I don't know, Chris, I've, I've, I've always been aware of Chris in the periphery because uh, I do enjoy his humor strips and I think he's a good letterer. And so it was kind of cool to see him get to, to do like a single issue. And yeah. Uh, so like, I think art took a, a jump, like the, the, the spots, the pinch hitting artist took a step up in volumes three and four, but related to uh, pacing. I was going to take this back here. Um, before you do that, do oh, we yeah, have sorry, a character sorry. building question? Oh yeah, actually I, yeah, I, I did write, you know, I wrote a character building question and then I was like, I think we're just in it. So, um, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean no, to take okay. it out. Yeah. 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 Um, but no, no. Well, the, this is going to tie into some things I wanted to talk about related to the story too, in the character okay. building question. So this is something I've been, this is a big one. So this one I've been mulling over in my own head that you guys are creators and I'd like your opinion on this. So this is kind of related to some things I saw in Hawkeye, which is I've been thinking a lot about when you're doing writing and you're trying to deal with potentially offensive or incendiary subject matter. And I've, I think like there was a, a real thought process in like the nineties where it's like, Hey, I want to talk about racism. So I'm going to depict racism. And I'm Mm going to show that racism is bad by showing it very accurately. And I think there's been a new school of thought, which is like, you can't like, by by depicting the racism, you're kind of just like giving it a platform and sort of putting it in people's heads. And so I've been really thinking a lot about how do you approach offensive or incendiary material, even something like swearing or cursing, which is something that you see a lot in Hawkeye here. How do you address that that is something that's happening, but sort of take the edges off? How do you sort of um, deal with offensive material without empowering the offensive material? So I've seen some really creative approaches recently and Matt Fraction actually employs some of them in this work. So I was gonna talk about that, but Mm -hmm. I think some people have sort of fallen into a mindset that like the best way to not deal with offensive materials to not deal with offensive material. But I, I kind of reject that. So it's just like, what, you know, what, what, where's that line or like how, what is the best way for an artist to sort of, how do you, how do you be edgy without punching down or punching sideways, you know, uh, or is a big one. Uh, I don't know if you guys have some, some responses to that. Uh, I definitely do. I recognize this is a Big question. Yeah, it is a yeah big we got to make sure this isn't now our whole podcast episode. It could um, be. It could be. Uh, I think, like, you've put me on the spot here, so I'm trying to think on my feet here, but uh, I don't think there is a single answer. I think different artists, different writers are going to take a different perspective on this and do, like, take a different approach. And also, different readers want different things. 
And uh, I don't think there is a, a single answer to that question because uh, maybe there shouldn't be. Maybe, and, and even within a, like, as a single reader, you might be ready for different levels of things at different points, like in your day or in your life. And uh, it makes sense for there to be a range of story approaches out there for you to read. Like I, I, I have a clearer idea, I think, of what I would be willing to do as an artist, but I don't think that that's like a solution that I can export and say, this is the way to do it. Yeah, very fair. Uh, I, I would uh, echo that statement that there is no true quote unquote right answer. I will say that the types of things you are asking about are topics and goals, right? So racism and its impacts is a topic and incendiary language is a tool and edginess is maybe a goal. So I think like uh, it's very important to keep in mind your, your goal your topic and the tools at your disposal. So if your goal is to make a comic about racism, like, first of all, be very, very clear why you're doing that. And, you know, are you the right person to do that? Mm. Is, is this the right time? You know, like there, you, I think you're totally, I, I actually agree with the people that like most of the, you know, we need to, to talk about this time by <laughs> we need to oh man it happens so often and it really pisses me off of like we need to address the fact that things were way more sexist or racist by showing people being really sexist and racist you know like mm. I don't I I don't agree with that approach and also usually it happens in uh context where that's not even what the story was quote-unquote about mm. You know, it just kind of comes like one of the places that I came out really weirdly was in uh, oh, what was that Guillermo del Toro movie with the fish guy? Oh, oh yeah, Shape of Water. Yeah. Shape of Water had like some weird racism, and it's like Shape of Water is not really about racism, I guess, or if it is, it's not done in a very effective way, and it's just kind of shoehorned in there of like, remember, this is the past when people were racist. It's like, okay, I kind of just wanted to see like fish guy Guillermo wants to fuck but like sure uh, <laughs> and uh so that's that's kind of a mismatch there for me uh and I feel the same way about language uh I feel if you want to create an age appropriate piece but you want to convey that someone is mad rather than like Hawkeye does this and like Marvel comics do this in a way that makes me just kind of feel turned off. Like instead of using the F word, they'll use like a proxy F word, but, but it's used in the, yeah, it's used in the exact same way in the exact same context. Like to me, that doesn't blunt anything. It just feels annoying. I would rather see the writer stretch a little farther and use mm. like, uh, when I was in, when I was in high school, we had this game where we would take words from Shakespeare we could choose any word we want and it was just about the context and we would go back and forth insulting each other oh. and so of course there were no quote-unquote swear words in in Shakespeare but it was very very there's lots of insults in Shakespeare and it was really fun and interesting to see how creative you could get just twisting the words around in Shakespeare to create quote-unquote an insult or an exclamation mm. and so I'd much rather see that right. uh, 
I kind of forget. Yeah. And then the last thing I want to say is like edginess for edginess's sake is like, yeah, <laughs> I'm kind oh, of over yeah, it to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like uh, maybe to kind of re- recontextualize my question somewhat, sure, sure. it's like, I definitely like, it's not about how do you be edgy and get away with it. It's more like, uh, I think maybe, maybe this is my limited perspective, but I think like there's times where it's like, I'll think of a really challenging story mm-hmm. and then I'll kind of be like, oh, but like people might read that as, as me, you know, people, people might misread my intentions. And so maybe it's better to just not deal with that. But then there's a part mm-hmm. of me that's like, well, like as an artist, you do need to kind of like challenge yourself and like, you some there's something to be said for maybe challenging your audience if you so choose to do so and like you don't always want to just play in a safe space and like do what is going to be crowd pleasing and so it's like well, see, I, I think i would you, say that i don't think edginess is the antithesis to safety fair enough yeah okay but yeah i guess i guess like i'm not I, yeah i'm not i'm not saying necessarily how do, how do you be edgy but it's like how do you kind of uh, take deal on with ch- controversial topics. You know, deal with controversial topics in a in a way that's appropriate. Mm. Maybe it's like uh, a better way to see it. You know, I would say like it's not your first instinct, which is like uh, just don't deal with it at all. Like just give it a wide berth. Right. Uh, I would say there, when you're an author and you have something you want to say, it forms perfectly in your head because there's no transmission. Right. There's no transmission between writer and reader so it's it's a perfect message in your head the second you commit it to to paper there's a risk of translation error let's say that's true of all communication and i personally believe i personally believe it is the responsibility of the author to foresee Mm. those uh potential misunderstandings Mm -hmm. and try to be as clear as possible Right. So rather than just like being overly explicit, maybe about what you're trying to be or, uh, you know, giving misunderstandings a wide berth or something like that, steering far, far away from what you want to avoid. I think you could be more clever. And of course, everything is like a case by case basis. And it's like, it's, it's the work, in my opinion, it's the work. Uh, There's, there's a lot of ways to do it. Yeah, it, it really does have to be case by case. And this could yeah, be Yeah, like- yeah. I mean, I definitely don't think there's a, a boil in the bag solution for sure. I guess it's just like one well, yeah, I was these are the I was curious your thoughts. I mean, these are good thoughts. So I think these are these are excellent responses. I mean, yeah. like this is something I haven't quite come to an answer myself, but it's something that I think part of it is I've recently been like looking at a lot of media criticism stuff where you know they'll talk about, you know, like hey, you know, like, uh, did you like Fight Club? Well, there's a lot of people that watch Fight Club and actually thought that that was a good idea. And you're just like, oh, but that was supposed to be satire. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but not everyone saw that satire. Yeah, and I think, like, I think a lot about that too. Uh, I haven't actually seen Fight, Fight Club, but the I still think of it as being the Fight Club dilemma where how do you make a work that's like anti-Nazi, but Nazis don't like it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and like- I don't think, again, I don't think there's a single answer. I think it's, it's, it's sort of a, it's a dance. Like communication right. is, there's a reason that this is called art and not science. Right, right. Uh, you, you have to sort of, 
guess what your audience is going to think and you're never going to be successful with your entire audience like right. maybe maybe there always will be the one nazi in the room who like just likes whatever you do and then what are you going to do about that right but right. you do have to sort of you I, have to think about these things you do i spend a lot, like a lot of time thinking about like how do i make art responsibly right um and i think that's that's the process that's the job description is is mm. sort of figuring out how to talk about the world in a way that gets the stuff that's inside your head mm. to someone else's head uh, in like uh, preserved as much as possible from the original knowing that it's never going to be like a perfect copy yeah mm. yeah no and yeah i guess like uh what sort of inspired this was just like uh throughout Hawkeye, there was multiple times. I mean, so they, they sort of, did, Matt Fraction used two devices and I sort of felt like I appreciated one more than the other. And so the one device you already mentioned is that instead of the F word, they say futz. Yeah. Which I agree with you. It's just like, I don't know. You may as well just put like hashtag ampersand exclamation point at that, you know, if you're going to I, I'd rather have that to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that yeah. takes me out of it less. Yeah. Um, and then- the other thing that he would do is sometimes he'd just put things in brackets and he would describe what was being said without saying it. And so yeah, I really like that. Like swearing in Slovakian or like, um, the, the, and I, I like that too. And I've seen this device used in another comic work. Like Jay Edidin did a Captain America story where it was Captain America in 20, I think 2016, 2017, like looking at American culture and really being like, ooh, we have a problem here. And like Steve Rogers is at a bar in his civilian clothes and then behind him, someone's talking and they have a speech balloon, but there's a black bar over it. And it just says in white text, like something incredibly racist. Mm. And so it's like dealing with the fact that Captain America's confront, like being confronted by people saying racist things, but we're not actually writing out racist things for people to read. Like, it's sort of like, this is a thing that's happening, but we're not actually forcing you to like, put these bad words in your head we're just like discussing the context of the existence of that sort of situation so i'm getting i i like that as a tool Mm. in a writer's arsenal i think it's a it's an interesting tool however i think of it like a laser scalpel and like you don't want to create your whole work with a laser scalpel (laughs) <laughs> and uh, it, there's like, there's a risk of like, why not just write the whole comic about that? Like, it's like, you're describing the comic to someone else, you know, like yeah. it could be overused in the same way that like futzing is overused. Like if it had come up once, it right. could be like this person, like, you know, they have a small kid and they say, shoot, you know, and right. that's just that character. But then if everyone uniformly uses shoot for the S word, then it's yeah. like, what, uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah. it's it's the same kind of thing. Like I, I actually like it as a tool. I think it's really interesting. I agree that it's like, it's kind of a new trend. So I'm interested in seeing how it gets used in other places, but uh, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a get out of jail free card for oh, doing your job. Right. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, no, for sure. A hundred percent. Like, I mean, I, I noticed with that fraction though, that like, I think in um, the previous volume in like the, the the tape there's a, a, a someone makes a comment in brackets and it's like the worst thing you could say to a woman or something or like yeah an insult to a woman that involves a female dog or something and so like trying to not use the b word but like acknowledging the b word but then later on in the story 
like he just writes it out. It just, it's in the dialogue. And so I'm just like, okay, like you need to be consistent here. Like, are we not saying the B word or are we saying the B word? You know, like- I don't think you do have to be consistent. I think this is like, Jam is describing this as a tool. And I think hmm. when you're an artist, you can like switch out your tools sometimes. Like, I think it depends on the context and how specific words or phrases or whatever hit in that context. Right. I mean, I guess, I guess for me, it just seemed inconsistent within the work itself. Like if it was two different stories, like, and he's using the tool or not using the tool, but that was within kind of the same story arc. I was like, wait. To me, again, that goes back to the point of lack of clarity mm. of what you're trying to do. Right. So like, it's, it's funny. There's like a, there's a feminist comic called Bitch Planet, <laughs> which is like very, very feminist, like a, and it, it uses that B word in the title very specifically to kind of like as a, a moment of shock of like as a moment of we are reclaiming this. Right. Uh, and so they were very clear on what they were doing by using that word. And I feel like this is an instance of the author is not really clear about, you know, and, and again, like feminism is not the topic of Hawkeye. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, it's weird. It's just like one or two pieces of dialogue that got me down this whole rabbit hole that uh, I wanted to talk to you guys about. <laughs> um, but I like, I do appreciate how Matt Fraction's trying to be creative with the way he presents the, the dialogue and like those little brackets and like um, later on, like the sign language scenes and like, I really liked the sign language scenes, to be stuff. honest. Like, yeah. yeah. And, like, and you could also say like, there's a lot of really creative language in the dog chapter as well. Yeah. because the dog understands nothing of human yeah. language or like almost nothing yeah yeah like so, that kind of stuff's really cool there's the the one episode in which is i guess in the previous part of the book yes. where it's all from the point of view of a dog and we've got like this dialogue but it's mostly scribbled out and the only words we get are the words that the dog might happen to have heard before or recognize and then this these sort of like smell maps which yeah. are really fun because that's the main way this dog understands the world. Yeah. Uh, I also am just realizing now that if you look at the color scheme, there's no red and green. Oh, is that oh, true? Shit. That's funny. It's all blue and yellow, like oh. what a dog would see. Because they don't see in black and white, but they don't, they can't distinguish between red and green. That's really what cool. Is that? Oh man, that's right. Oh, that's crazy. Right. Everything's kind of blue and yellow. I, I enjoyed that chapter. I thought it was a fun little break. And it also like, it's the point narratively when Kate Bishop leaves and goes on her own adventure for a while. And yeah. at first we don't, as the reader, we don't clearly understand why that's happening. And we just see like some discussion is happening and then Kate leaves and the dog decides to go with Kate. Yeah. And only in later chapters do we get a another perspective on that scene and I thought that was fun that was a really interesting way to do that narrative break and exchange mm -hmm. yeah, it's I mean that whole dog chapter again uh now that I've read the rest of the book the whole dog chapter is kind of summarizing lots of moments from later later on in the story too like um, yeah the, the the dog knows like important facts about the plot and the characters that the, the main characters don't get to find out until much, much later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was like the, the yeah, the big twist with the, the old lady, like uh -huh. uh, the dog knows about that first, you know, um, <laughs> we should listen to the dogs. 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't think the dog even realizes that it's significant. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, okay. So I, now this is an important thing I wanted to check in with you guys on since you've both read the omnibus. In my reading of volume three, it is all about Kate Bishop going to LA. And when you look at the credits, they are even numbered issues only. So it's, um, oh, interesting. Right. Okay. Okay. 14, 16, 18, 20. And then if you read volume four, it's all about Clint Barton and it's odd numbered issues. I think okay. it was the same in the omnibus. I think the no, I LA think was presented as a chunk. I don't know. My memory is pretty bad. Okay. No, so I, I think, no, I think it does switch back and forth because there's uh, the stuff oh, where Clint meets his brother uh, is like in the first half of that. Okay. So this is, we're, we're complaining. I, and I promised Jonathan, I wasn't going to spend the whole episode complaining about how Marvel organizes their trades, but you know what complaints were complaints were due. This affects, yeah, yeah, this affects yeah, the readership. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, speaking as someone who did not read the omnibus, all of Kate Bishop's story is drawn by Annie Wu and is all in one book, but it's the even numbered issues. And then all of the David Aha stuff is the next book. And it's just about Hawkeye and his brother. But I get the impression that if I was reading this monthly, I would have been, here's Kate in LA. Now here's Clinton, New York, New York. Now here's Kate in LA. Now here's Clinton, New York. Yeah. Leading up to Kate returning at the very end. And so I'm like, I'd kind of be interested to read it in publishing order, but like someone at Marvel was like, no, we're just gonna uh, like read it this other way. <laughs> oh, and here's- gotta make up their minds is what they gotta do. Yeah, like, the back and forth is is nice, right? Because otherwise yeah, you spend a I didn't long mind that time at all. away from Clint Barton. Like, I don't know, maybe the experience would be different reading it month by month and then one month you get like a different story than the next. I don't know how well that would work, but reading it as a giant omnibus- like I didn't mind it. There's only the two stories to keep track of. Right. Uh, by this point, we know these characters pretty well. So I didn't find that confusing at all. Yeah. So I don't know. I, but whatever, like I said, I committed to the format, but like, <laughs> I definitely was like, wait, I don't think I'm reading this in the, I don't think I'm getting the same reading experience. So like the choice of buying individual trades versus buying the omnibus affects, like, it's just like, I don't know. Marvel, what do you want? How do you want me to read this? Like, just, yeah, they just got to make up their minds. It's like, lock it down. This is how you read it. Like, it should be like um, for our superhero comics of all things. Like, if there's one thing superhero comics are famous for, is their like sprawling canon and continuity that is defended to the death by certain individuals online. So, like, why not just like here is the definitive. Hawkeye this is how it is meant to be read if you did not read it this way you did not fully get the experience and yet it's just like I don't know whatever how do you feel like reading it do you want to read it this way or this way we classified it by creator instead of by continuity (laughs) I don't know but then on the other hand sometimes there are if I'm only interested in one writer artist pair Right. the work that they're doing right for example like the reason we chose to read this omnibus is because it's primarily the matt fraction david aha omnibus right. <laughs> and right. so like yeah. collecting it i don't want i don't want to say that across the board don't batch things by writer artist it's like it's weird i i guess like especially with the what we can say for certain 
is that when it comes to the publishing treatment of this particular story arc, there is a lot of disagreement between yeah, yeah. Marvel. <laughs> but I mean, like, again, it's sort of like if, um, like if I pick up volume three and it's just like, oh, there's no David Ahad, it's just Kate Bishop. I'll just not read that. Well, like then I read like volume four and like, okay. You missed out on all that character just, development. Like, I don't know. I feel like it's important to have actually read that stuff, you know, like for the whole, yeah. like it all matters. It does. Yeah. It all matters. So it's weird that they're setting it up in a way where it's like, well, if you don't want to read Annie Wu, then you don't have to like, interesting why, why not well just put it together like i liked the i liked annie Wu. i yeah. think she did a good job i think she draws really fun faces like there's the um the one page where it's like just kate bishop's mug shots oh, i thought yeah. were fantastic yeah. like just those two panels like they say a lot but they they add a lot of depth to the character that i think was still sort of in development story-wise at that point. We didn't necessarily know that much about her yet as a person. And those two panels just like tell us a lot. Yeah, yeah I thought those chapters were quite fun. It was a nice break. Yeah. Because it had a very different flavor. Like when you're when you're with Kate in LA, the story and the flow is completely different. You know, she's not, she's not established. This isn't her hood. She's, you know, the young upstart trying to like solve crimes in LA and everyone's like what are you doing you're upsetting like the delicate balance of our crime ecosystem here (laughs) (laughs) it's 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 kind of fun and uh yeah I yeah it's it's like this sort of noir story uh but with like very strange it was it was a bit strange yeah like it starts with these orchids (laughs) that get stolen and uh these two guys these poor two guys who just <laughs> just wanted to get married and have some nice orchids and then they have Kate Bishop this you know this messy white girl come up and like completely screw up their life for a while and they're like I guess we're shepherding around this white girl whatever you know? yeah. <laughs> it's very strange I felt that they were very put upon but I liked those characters a lot oh yeah uh-huh. yeah I also liked that her big nemesis was Flint Ward the weed lord the weed lord yeah, yeah. It's just like fun, random, like, because I mean, you get this in superheroes. It, it felt like, random. Yeah. It everything felt is weird random. and random. And there's like supervillains who don't make sense and have a gimmick. But this feels like at the same time, kind of grounded is like a very low level of that, where there's the weirdness and the strange people that she runs into. But it's still like, it's a thing you could believe might happen, maybe. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Except for the part about the clones. Yeah, yeah the clones. I'm like, we don't, was, we're escaping death now. I'm like, yeah. this is, this is weird. But he, although, so it kind of fits in a story about LA. Yeah. Like I kind of, I think it's thematically appropriate as a twist, but it did kind of drag everything back up into the supernatural in a, yeah. in a way. Well, uh-huh. it, it, that was something else too, because when I first started reading the Kate Bishop stuff, like she keeps going to the grocery store and there's this, frumpy guy in a trench coat that keeps giving her advice on how to be a private detective this columbo looking guy that's the thing, yeah like, he doesn't I look was... enough like columbo it took me half the half right. of the part to find figure out the, oh it's columbo oh see just this that he was a frumpy guy in a trench coat i was like oh it's supposed to be columbo yeah i, I got it pretty quick as well <laughs> but i agree like if Annie Wu was trying to caricature columbo 
she did well, I mean, that would be fraught. Like, there's there's yeah. legal issues. Yes, yeah, fair enough. Fair so, enough. fair enough. It's yeah, it's a Columbo-inspired person. Yeah, I think it, it but, treads that line well. Yeah, but, you know, like, at the beginning, like, she's meeting him and getting advice, and then he disappears, and, like, she goes to the clerk, like, was I talking to a man? And she's like, you were just here by yourself. And so there was this implication that maybe she was imagining Columbo giving her advice, which, like, I've seen this in other stories, and I, I love that, like, you know, like I loved when it, like you've got a character who just like talks to Elvis like in their head and you're just like, that's great. I love that. I love like they are obsessed with this figure and they they have like a like a guardian angel in this in this celebrity. Like that's a fun narrative choice. But then the next part of the arc, it's like, oh, no, no, Columbo's a real guy and he's got a whole story. He's like immortal and he's trapped in LA and Madame Mass keeps bringing him back to life and beating him up when he tries to leave town. And I'm like, wait, no, can he just be Columbo? Can he just be the Columbo that's like in her head? Like <laughs> shoulder Columbo. That's like, fun. Have another guy, have another person that's having a dilemma. Like Columbo can just be Columbo. Like it doesn't, it doesn't all have to tie together. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's superheroes are. It always ties together. Yeah, I was a little classic trope. I was a little disappointed in how that arc ended with mm. uh, Kate's borrowed RV being torched. I was mm. like, that's kind of bleak for the person who rented her the RV. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. was a bit of a bummer. Bummer note to end on. It was not a triumphant return for sure. Mm-hmm. I did like that she decided to give up on her family wealth though i did too i thought that, that was, was an interesting like i mean if there's one thing we apparently know about kate bishop is that she's rich so that felt like <laughs> a good a good uh character development point for sure yeah yeah she went on this journey and uh and not like, only give up like betray yeah 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 uh, and like that i wasn't expecting that as like a thing that would come up again i just assumed like oh well she's rich and we have to just like fine okay uh, but then that actually becomes part of the story in an interesting way. Yeah. Right. And she, you know, the time that she spent in LA trying to quote unquote, make it on her own and uh, live like the common folk, I think really, uh-huh. really did this white girl good. I, I, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'm a little biased because I'm a cyclist, but I really love that she was cycling in LA, which is- That was like, fun. Like, I agree most, with that. Yeah. Most anti-cycling town I can think of. Bike. <laughs> and like the, the drivers were kind of anti her being on a bike as well, yeah. which was, yeah. which is fitting. I liked that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm, with- I'm the superhero with my bike and my bow and arrow. It's yeah. like, it's really <laughs> out of place in LA and it's- yeah. uh, it's fun. I appreciated her spunkiness mm-hmm. in in light of that situation that she was in. And like big shout outs to Annie Wu for uh, always having Kate in a different fashionable outfit in purple uh, every every issue. Like she's never dressed the same. She's always you can tell it's like a teenager hanging out in L.A., you know, um, you know, this is a weird uh, point of contrast between. Uh, the TV show and the comic. Uh, but part of why I suggested this because I, I had watched the miniseries. But in the miniseries, her father dies right at the beginning. He gets killed during the uh, Avengers movie, basically. And I see. They build up her relationship with her mother. And the big turn in the TV show is that her mother is in bed with the mafia. 
she has to make mm. a choice. So I found it very interesting that in this book, it's all about her father and her father being in the mob and betraying her. And the TV shows just went the complete opposite direction and built up this mother-daughter relationship. It's just, I don't know, is this like an interesting choice? Uh, I'm noting. Uh, yeah, so then we come back to, to New York. Right. I wanted to say something that I didn't address in this last book, but it kind of carries through yeah. this novel. And the antagonist from Clint Barton's perspective in this series of books is what could be described as the tracksuit mafia. Uh, a bunch of Russians, <laughs> most Assuming of the time, yeah. Russians uh, who only wear tracksuits. And only say the word bro most of the time. <laughs> uh, and it's obviously played for laughs, but it made me a little bit uncomfortable because in a lot of other contexts, this would this could be seen as like an ethnically disparaging, like kind of racist betrayal. Yeah, and I think that's fair. It's also it's obviously like done in a lighthearted way, especially as it gets pushed to the point of absurdity, where <laughs> they go from saying bro a lot to saying bro nearly exclusively to saying bro entirely <laughs> and it's like the only word that they use and then the tracksuits get pushed kind of to absurdity as as well where their mob boss wears slatted shades for reasons you know and it's it's very over the top but I can't help but feel like if this was a different ethnic portrayal it would be very inappropriate so I don't mm -hmm. see a reason why it's appropriate in this context Right. Especially because that is like a, a stereotype exactly. uh, of Russians that they're the, the mob and wear tracksuits. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I thought that was something that's not going to age well. Let's put it that way. Mm, and yeah. that's, that is something they definitely opted to keep in uh, the TV series, which. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I think I'd have to rewatch it, but I think that maybe the people in the tracksuits are at least externally seem more diverse. Okay. Uh, I think I, if it was, if it was <laughs> less, uh, I mean, like if you just supplant a stereotype and say, it's like, oh, you know, they, they, they have all the stereotypes from this one group, but they're really this other group. Does it make it better? I don't know. Like, <laughs> I feel like this is a fluid conversation and I feel like it's a, an evolving conversation, but to yeah. me, it felt a little like, eh, I don't know about this. <laughs> well, I mean, and I would say that in LA, Kate Bishop keeps dealing with the bellhops, right? Right. And yeah. I was like, see, that's fun because it's like, who the fuck is a bell? Like, you've never seen a bellhop anymore. Like, who dresses in a bellhop uniform now? So, yeah. like, that was like, I think a little more of it's like quirky, but it's like you can't really pigeonhole any one group there. It's just like a bunch uh -huh. of guys in bellhop outfits, and you're just like, that's kind of wild and and wacky. Yeah. And, yeah, and you're not playing into any stereotypes. There's yeah. no stereotype about bellhops being in the mob. Yeah. Or in a weird <laughs> cult or whatever. Like it, the, the bellhops felt very 60s Batman TV show, which yeah. is like, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's maybe what they were trying to go for with the tracksuit mafia. I think so as well. But I think it was less successful because it happens to align with these other stereotypes. Yes, yeah. agree. And especially keeping in mind, like, it's kind of, you get kind of a Sopranos vibe out of it, right? Because the Italian mafia is real. The mm -hmm. Russian mafia is real. They do mm -hmm. cause, like, real problems for real people. So mm -hmm. it's a, it's like, okay, you were trying to do a fun thing, but you're doing a fun thing out of a less fun thing. 
<laughs> right. out of a less fun source material. So mm. yeah, like, yeah, maybe Think about this. build it around something a little more, yeah, a little less grounded in reality, maybe. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is, but uh, yeah, it's it, it kind of it's, it's a sort of weird gray area where it's like, Mm, maybe some rethought some rethinking is involved but yeah like what exactly you would come up with at the end I don't know yeah, yeah. I don't know either so, uh but I but it was very climactic uh that the mafia came back you know Clint Martin chose not to legally purchase this building <laughs> well yeah this is I was kind of talking about this in the last episode where he's bad at his job he, he really needed to like actually buy the building instead of just like handing over a bag of money and saying okay this is mine now yeah, <laughs> and, and the fact that he's was bad at his job at that point causes the problem they're in now. Yeah, right. it definitely yeah. feels like a finding out kind of arc. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, um, yeah, I I really um, like just putting on my my comic nerd hat. Um, I really liked how the last book kind of delved into the lore of the character Hawkeye a little bit more because mm. um, not that this is important to understand the current story, but the actual character of Hawkeye originally was a supervillain who was convinced to turn to the side of good by Captain America. And so kind of Clint Barton has always sort of had that, like I was a villain and I've changed my ways. And I think they really tried to touch on that in the end of this series, which I thought was kind of cool. I don't know if his brother Barney is a pre-existing continuity character or not, but his brother definitely added some layers there. Um, yeah, I don't think it matters but, whether his brother yeah, was it, in any previous important. comics or not. We don't need to put those comics at the front of this volume to understand yeah. everything we need to know about his character. Not important. Interestingly, but- interestingly, uh, you mentioned that, Je- uh, Jeff, the fact that he used to be a villain. I did not pick up at that. Oh, okay. As a new reader, I got the sense that he came from poverty, that he came from maybe like a bad situation and then became a superhero somewhere. But this whole like thing with Captain America, like okay. whoosh over my head. Like, okay. He did say at some point that he was like a thief or something, I think. Like, yeah, was... but there's a big gulf between thief and supervillain. Right. That's true. It, it was yeah. it was handled in a very subtle way. And that's that's where I like I'm like, I don't know if this is important to understand the the current story but as someone who's a little more familiar with the character I was like oh I like that it kind of gives you the opportunity to bring that lore in if you're familiar with it but it doesn't require you to know that lore to enjoy the story Um, yeah which another part of Hawkeye's lore that they touched on more at the end which I kind of wish they'd done more with at the beginning is the fact that Hawkeye canonically has been partially deaf and the TV series introduced this, which you'd never seen Hawkeye talk about his hearing in any of the other movies. So I appreciated that they brought that in because I don't know, like uh, having a superhero with a disability is kind of a cool thing. And like, you know, you have Daredevil, but his disability almost is moot because his other powers sort of mm-hmm. circumvent Yeah, his it. superpower oh. is, oh, he's not actually deaf. Yeah, but <laughs> kind of like the, like I kind of- not actually blind, blind. I guess. Yeah. Not actually blind, yeah. So I, I appreciate that, you know, Hawkeye is someone with no powers and he is partially deaf. And then when the clown punctures his other eardrum, he's fully deaf for a section of the story. And they, like, I actually really liked that 
um, they kept doing the American Sign Language panels uh, with no captions. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was really and, yeah. effective. And, and I, I liked it. Yeah. Like, I don't understand. I, I don't know sign language, so I couldn't read that part. But that's puts you in that situation, right? You're like then relating to not being able to understand everything that's going on. So it's perfect. Well, yeah. it, except that, or it's almost backwards, right? Because uh, Clint does understand the sign language, but he's refusing to communicate that way because of stubbornness, <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. But, uh, and then it kind of makes it backwards because we understand the printed dialogue part where Clint may not. Right. And then like Clint understands the sign language part where we may not. And right. I, I, it made for a very interesting reading experience. I respect the choice of not translating the ASL sections. I yeah. I, I felt super called out by that chapter. I was like, I probably should just like learn this. Like the whole language. It's a big job to learn it. It's a big job, but it's a, it's worthwhile. It, it is a language that has interested me for a while, for sure. Uh, and uh, yeah, it comes with its own syntax. It comes with its own grammatical rules. It's a, it's a really interesting thing that more people should learn as a second language. Yeah, Sorry so for I, the sirens. Oh, that's okay. Fun of podcasting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, I really appreciated that they, you know, like kind of uh, brought that element in to sort of get his or yeah, offer like a perspective on what it's like to be like deaf, like the, the blank speech balloons, the ALS panels. Like that was just, again, sort of like the dog issue. Like it just felt like really experimenting with the medium and experimenting with the way you can tell a story in comics form. And I really like that. And again, just because like, you know, I think, canonically this is supposed to be a character with a disability they often ignore it and mm-hmm. so I kind of I always appreciate when they actually are like no yeah he's got a disability this is part of who he is as a person I'm like yes more of that like let's not forget that he always needs a hearing aid like let's just keep that in the character you know yeah pretty cool I'm glad I'm glad it was explored because it did make me a lot more interested in the character as well because I like mm-hmm. I still like at the end of this book felt a little bit confused of like, why is this guy who could just shoot arrows part of the adventures still unclear, but I do like him a lot better as a person now. (laughs) And like, now when I see him in the movies, I'll be like, Hey, it's that hot guy. (laughs) I also like that. uh, So we got this tracksuit mafia with their like evil scheme. I like that their evil scheme is just, we want to have all this property. And so we can sell it. Like they're not even building like a, a super villain base. It's not even clear what it is they're building. It's just like a big building. It's because Jonathan, the true super villain is capitalism. Yes, yeah, no. I know. That's what I want. <laughs> yeah, no. Give me more of that. Jonathan, Jonathan, they were very clear about what they were going to build. There was the business meeting with the, the clown and all the businessmen. And they were like, we're going to keep the existing foundations. And we're just going to build this new luxury uh like condo development yeah that's what it was yeah it was forgettable because it's so common retaining some of the original characteristics you know like as three people living in the lower mainland we should be very familiar (laughs) with uh having expensive living sorry expensive uh condos being built with the existing bones of uh the historical neighborhood uh-huh. that used to exist yeah pushing out all the, <laughs> like, the people who used to live there because they're not going to be able to afford those condos yeah, like this yeah. like uh, that scene i was like oh yeah like those guys the developers yeah we have those 
those supervillains are all over my city. We, yeah, we see, they didn't need to be guy. Russian. They could just be <laughs> developers. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, 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 I feel like the the clown uh, might have some reservations if he was asked to work in the Vancouver real estate scene. He'd be like, "You guys are crazy! Like, I have some limits." <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's the same. New York rents and Vancouver rents are probably pretty comparable. Yeah. At this point, yeah. Uh, I liked that clown. Yeah. I feel also, like we didn't like, get I want to shout out, out Frank Avila but... again because he, I guess that wasn't the clown episode he did in this one. He did the clown episode in the last one and this yeah. one it was about his brother. He did the he did the origin story of the clown though. So I think Frank Avila yeah. has left his mark on the character, but um, David Aha does a great representation of him too. I did read some, um, it, some. I, I actually don't remember where I read it, but I've, I've read some like interviews with Matt Fraction where apparently he, his intention with the clown was to do a parody of the Joker. Like he very much mm. was wanting to sort of create a Joker-esque character in the Mar- Marvel universe to sort of do his, his own sort of take on the Joker, I guess, uh, which... I know I kind of enjoyed this idea of like a guy who just happens to put on like a mime mime face paint when he goes out to kill people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it felt iconic. It felt, it it made, it made the whole thing feel more super villainy. Whereas like a lot of this arc has been very grounded. It has been very superhero adjacent. And I felt like the inclusion of this, this weird clown assassin guy kind of dragged it up a bit i guess you could say madame mask as well dragged mm-hmm. it back up into the superhero world yeah but i felt that uh the clown functioned that way as well yeah it was interesting the a lot of the um the flashbacks to uh clint barton's childhood in the in the last volume again were pretty good at informing the character a little bit more where you sort of get a better sense of his upbringing and he learned to fight because he had to fight to defend himself from his father, right? Like yeah. that's a it's not a happy origin story, but it's definitely like a compelling origin story. Um, yeah, and the imp- importance of his brother in his life and why when his yeah. brother just shows up out of the blue, even though he's not a great guy, he like, well, I have to take in my brother because like, look where we've been through. Yeah. It's yeah, interesting. I, I like that he... All- multiple times in the story he refers to his brother as being the the real fighter like the one that really informed sort of his abilities as a superhero like even there's a line in here where he's like captain america taught me how to fight my brother taught me how to inflict pain or something like that uh or Mm. taught me how to hurt like i don't know i just found like that very that's a very character informing kind of piece of dialogue you know Definitely. I did like the scenes with the brother. I thought that was a nice inclusion. And I like in the end that he left with that, that other single mom and two kids family. He's like, <laughs> peace out. <laughs> did he take the bag of money with him too? Oh, yes. Well, he took all the money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was, I was confused about that as well. Just like uh, we talked about this last, last episode where, you know, he just has a bag of money and you mentioned that it wasn't from something specific. It was just Avengers pay. Avengers pay him in double bags of money. Um, and uh, then in this episode, there's like a basement now full of duffel bags of money. Right. 
with which the brother presumably seems to all take. And yeah. I I was just very confused about where this money is so, coming from. And because I've I've just I just read it like basically yesterday. So yeah, like so the money in the basement. Clint Barton was very clear to his brother that like, this is money I've stolen from criminals while being Hawkeye. Like this is my collection of okay, of money so it's that not I've acquired. Paid. So that's not his Avengers paid, but I'm- I, I'm So not, it's search I'm, and seizure? <laughs> I'm a little more, I'm a little more hazy on this, but I feel like in the first chapter when he brought the bag of money to the, um, the meeting, I think he claimed it was his, like his Avengers money. Oh, maybe he wasn't as being like a as that. a euphemism, maybe. Maybe, yeah, yeah. My Avengers pay is what I seize from these supervillains. Maybe, and that's, that's yeah, that's interesting. That's morally kind of gray, but like yeah. you just take bags of money from the people yeah. you beat up. If the people well, you know, you beat up are bad, I don't know. I feel it's okay weird. To, about it. If it's the kingpin, you can steal money from him. It's okay, right? I, I mean, the police know. would. The police would, but that does not make. That's not a good characteristic of the police. No, I know, I know. <laughs> Sorry. But it's, it's interesting then that he's sort of like doing the, what the police would do and like taking the kingpin's money. I'm just going to assume it's the kingpin's. And, but he's like also then not quite willing to spend it. He's yeah. going to like hide it in his basement because he doesn't know what to do with it now. Yeah. It's very, it's, it's weird. It's, it's character revealing. Let's put yeah. it that way. Yeah. It's character revealing. Yeah. What? I think I liked the, I think that was, again, like I really liked the end of this work because I do feel like, you know, it all comes to a head where the bros are attacking the building. The people have to kind of fight for themselves. And like Clint is recognizing like, oh, like I kind of caused this to happen because I didn't sign the paperwork and I didn't reach out for help i didn't call the avengers i didn't call the police like you know we're in this situation because of all the choices i've made and like it's a real mess at the end and i do think i appreciate that he kind of comes to terms with the fact that like i sort of caused this mess you know i think that was character growth for him yeah Yeah. and he brought all of these people into it as well uh and they all got involved in the fighting and I, i feel like it was a measure of guilt that Hawkeye was feeling of like, I'm sorry, I've dragged you into this, but it was also a nice, you know, community moment of we're all going to mm-hmm. band together to, to defend this building. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Like he, he didn't ask for help soon enough, but he did get help in the end yeah. kind of because they needed to help him. And like that, that's, that's how he succeeded is by actually like getting other people involved. Yeah. Yeah. Well, every, everyone kind of contributes, right? Like, Black Widow uh, gives him the information about the clown. His ex-wife, uh, you know, helps him figure out exactly what's going on with the the mob and why they want this building. You know, he has somewhat of a reconciliation with his girlfriend Jessica, uh, aka Spider Woman, and then Kate comes back and helps him. And then the people of the building, like. The, the moment when all the bros are getting up from the explosion and then everyone in the building is like, we're the neighborhood watch. I was like, that's great. <laughs> Love that. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. I thought the <laughs> ending of this uh, book felt very satisfying. It didn't feel like, like obviously the story could continue from here, but it didn't feel like an unsatisfying to be continued. Mm-hmm. No, which yeah. I feel is another kind of reservation that I have about getting into superheroes is that it doesn't feel like there's ever a nice ending point. 
Whereas this felt like a very nice chunk of story to experience. So I, yeah. from that perspective, I'm glad this is an omnibus. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I was thinking about this today, which is I just really appreciate that like you have Hawkeye, this kind of long-standing figure that's been around since the 60s. And I, I, I don't know exactly when, but at some point it was decided, hey, we're going to bring in Kate Bishop as this young replacement Hawkeye, essentially, or like Hawkeye in training or whatever. And like, I feel like this really paved the way really well for like really letting Kate Bishop come in as a character. And I think it's hard to do because I think, you know, again, with superhero fans, like people get really entrenched in this is the character. It must always be this character. It must never change. And so I, I kind of appreciate that okay, we have this young woman who can be Hawkeye. The the white man, the old white man is still here too. Don't freak out. But like, we're bringing in someone else. And like, if you're a young lady and you want to read about a young lady being a superhero, she's here now too. But we also have the old guard as well. And it was like, I don't know, I appreciated that it's sort of uh, evolving a little bit and bringing in a little bit. I don't know. I, I I've agree always with enjoyed... that. Yeah. It feels like evolving Spider-Man in that way as well. Yeah. Like yeah. it does it very successfully. Like it takes this yeah. very strong brand and it's like, look, someone new is taking that mantle now. Yeah. And they get to be a, like a different person. They, they're not just a, a carbon copy and, and yeah. they're allowed to sort of coexist, yeah. which I think a lot of the problems that have happened with like giving the same name and powers to another character, like it, the some of the complaints are like ridiculous but the 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 sort of the seed of it is like you're taking out a character and putting a different character in whereas in this case no there's two hawkeyes now they call each other hawkeye yeah yeah, yeah like I, it's interesting it's an interesting dynamic i i don't know i like that i i think like i don't know as 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 a youth reading comics as as, as someone exclusively reading superhero comics for a time in my life i was perceptive of the evolution of the character. Like I was reading Spider-Man when he was married and like probably like 30 years old and like starting a new job as a, as a high school teacher. And like, I read all the back issues and I knew that he started when he was 16 years old. And I'm like, wow, like here I'm reading this whole journey of this man's life. But then editorially, I find out that they're like, oh God, we got to do something about this. Like he's too old he's married. We can't bring in new love interests. We got to like push a reset button. And initially they do like ultimate Spider-Man. We're like, we're just going to retell the same story, but he's 16 now. Um, but then you see, okay, well, what if we just bring in like Miles Morales and we just do something new? And like, as a youth, I always, for me, I was more interested in like, I would love to see Peter Parker retire and pass the costume to someone else and have a new person step in and like, I don't, I was, I'm always interested in that idea of like superheroes retiring or dying and then new people coming in and that you have this kind of evolution. Like, uh, even though I wasn't reading it a lot, I think now that I've been catching up on X-Men through the, um, explain the X-Men podcast, like I really appreciate that for a while there, it was like setting up a, a vibrant world where like characters come in and characters come out and people have arcs and it's like, it's this ever evolving landscape. And so I appreciate uh, any attempt to 
like bring new characters in and let them thrive as opposed to like, no, it's got to always just be the same characters that were created in the 1960s. We can never have anyone else show up, you know? You know what it kind of reminds me of is this uh, thing that we see in syndicated comic strips where sometimes a comic strip is allowed to die, but if it's big enough, usually the paper does not want to retire a comic strip. So it has been the case where it passes generationally mm-hmm. that like uh, someone will pass their news- poor, newspaper strip job down to their kids. Poor Jeffy. Poor Jeffy. Poor Jeffy. But uh, <laughs> it's like the case with, there's now some interesting stuff happening with uh, Nancy, which has been taken over by Olivia James. So this is a comic that is in a pre-existing property, like from the 30s, like a very long-standing group of characters and a completely different author has taken it up and it's now a completely different voice and a completely different vibe, but it still fills that, you know, the cowl of uh, Nancy in a really interesting way. Yeah, uh, and I, I just love the way that Olivia James kind of understands the the heart of the comic in a way that more recent people because like the person she replaced was not the original uh, artist either it had gone through multiple hands and like the more recent ones were just like there was nothing interesting going on but she understands like what the what was good about nancy in the beginning i think it was just weird it feels like a kind of traditionalism you know what (laughs) i mean like I, i there's a definite argument to be made that has been made about you know people passing comic strips down to their children of like just let it go and let new people come in but it feels like carrying on a tradition Mm. and superman spider-man these feel like traditional characters at this point Mm -hmm. and uh that's why it's i I, yeah i don't know it interests me yeah dichotomy there yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah. (laughs) i'm my final thought is uh I thought this was a really, this was good comics. Mm. Despite the flaws that I've already mentioned, I really enjoyed this work and I thought it was an interesting superhero comic to read. Good comics. Mm. Thank you for recommending it. Oh, cheers. Thank you. I'm glad. Yeah, like I I also really enjoyed this. I don't know how often there are going to be superhero stories that uh, I will read that I'll enjoy as much as this. But Mm -hmm. I like that there are books like this that, that exist and if they if this was a more consistent phenomenon i might i don't know read marvel again <laughs> perish the thought <laughs> i i mean i i'm really glad i read this i think i i think mean, yeah this was just good comics period but also um i think that's actually it's it's rekindled a little bit of my feelings of reading superhero comics when i was younger and it's kind of reminded me that there can be some really fun fun stuff in those floppy those monthly floppies and i'll warn you guys i might try to find some specific self-contained arcs of famous creator runs uh for our future superheroes that we can cover in the future so yeah if you will uh do the legwork of finding yes, them i will i will happily accept them in my hands i think, I think <laughs> moving forward i'm gonna have to specifically like copy the uh cover image in the ISBN. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, on the theme of impenetrable longstanding works, 
I want to give a shout out to Star Trek Lower Decks. Uh, I am a huge Trekkie. I've been a Trekkie for a long time, but Star Trek is one of those things that's a little bit difficult to recommend. I don't feel the movies reflect them very well. <laughs> and if you want to tell someone to get into Star Trek, it's like, okay, well, the best series is The Next Generation, but at don't watch season one just like jump into season two and actually season two is a little rough and it kind of gets going later but but it changed my life it's like the best it's the best series ever you know like it's a really hard sell lower decks is a animated series it's two seasons so far it's ex all new characters all new ship extremely lighthearted, very loving to the source material but it and it feels like it fits genuinely within that universe but it does not have a lot of prerequisite knowledge. Like, I think if you understand that they're in space doing space stuff on a spaceship and there's like, you know, the if you've, if you've absorbed a little bit about Star Trek from osmosis, that feels like enough. And so I really enjoyed the series. And yeah, even if you don't like Star Trek, check it out. Okay. Oh, and I'm Jam. I still have no shout outs. I haven't read anything. <laughs> websites or anything no all right. uh, okay all right here we go i'm gonna shout out we were talking about olivia james i'm gonna shout out the comic that i did uh a couple of years ago where i was like i want i decided i want to do that but with a comic that i'm not necessarily actually a fan of but i remember reading when i was a kid so i did a comic adaptation basically a fan comic of bc which is a newspaper comic you don't need to read because it's not any good. But uh, I sort of flipped it and turned it into my own take. And it is on my website. I called it BCE just to distinguish it as a different thing. It was very fun. I like it. I remember it. that. You should link that. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, instead of being a comic about reinforcing gender norms and jokes about dinosaurs, I made a comic that was about deconstructing gender norms and about climate change nice all right well i'm jeff ellis and uh well i feel like this is kind of going to be a downer but uh, i also feel like this is an important book to plug so i just started reading this book it's by one of my favorite podcasters nora loretto and it's called spin doctors how media and politicians misdiagnosed the covid19 pandemic mm. um and it's basically going through the first year of the pandemic uh, starting in January and going through the government and media failures to uh, handle this pandemic from a Canadian perspective. Hmm. Um, and it's not getting a lot of attention because I think right now it's very fashionable to uh, just pretend like it's all over and we're fine. But I do think uh, if you can stomach it, maybe it's worth a read. Those who do not learn from their mistakes. Yes. So I'd say. Our next episode will be volume two of The Golden Age by Roxanne Morel and Sidril Pedrosa. We did a, uh, an episode about the first volume, but the second volume now is now out. And we're going to read it and we're going to talk about it. We're going to have our special guest, Hannah Myers. Yeah, Hannah Myers will be, will be back for that. <laughs>